Welcome to the Age Reversing Blueprint Podcast, where we discuss tools and tips to help you reverse your age naturally. Uh, an omega-3 index over 8% is the target value. That's, that's what you want to go for. Uh, and then omega-3 levels are not, are not just a marker of how much fish you eat. They're, in fact, a, as much of a risk factor as cholesterol is, more than. It's a better risk factor, a better predictor of adverse outcomes. I'm glad you brought the calculator up. We, we did a paper with a gal named Rachel Walker at Penn State some years ago. We asked the question, how much omega-3 do you need to con- go from like a 4% to an 8% omega-3 index? And we did it with a bunch of data that we had collected. And we produced a calculator that is on our website now. What you do is you put in your current omega-3 index value. The equation in the background is set to tell you how much more omega-3 you need to take to go from your value up to 8%. And for your example, 5%, you need roughly 1,000 milligrams on average. I mean, that's, again, coming out of an equation from 1,100 people. It's a good place to start. Aim for 1,000 additional grams of uh, milligrams of EPA and DHA per day. And over three to four months, you should see an increase. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition where I'm really excited to announce our amazing guest, Dr. Bill Harris. He's a leader and leading researcher in the omega-3 fatty acid field for over 40 years. He has over 300 scientific papers on fatty acids and health, the vast majority on omega-3s. He's been on the faculty of three medical schools and has received five NIH grants to study omega-3s. He was the co-author of three AHA statements on fatty acid and heart health as the co-inventor of the omega-3 index, which we'll be getting into, and the omega-3 blood tests and founder of OmegaQuant Analytics. Dr. Harris has been ranked among the top 2% of scientists worldwide based on the impact that he's had with his research. Dr. Bill, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, great to be here. Yes. Um, so I always like to do some research so that I can ask intelligent questions before we get here. Uh, I know that initially in the 70s, you were asked to study dietary fat and the effects on cholesterol. And at that time, we knew about animal fats raised cholesterol, or at least now we know triglycerides and vegetable oils lowered cholesterol or triglycerides. But you, as you mentioned there, we, we weren't really sure why. Um, so potentially over the 40 years, um, I guess that's a good starting point to know where we started from and where we where we are now. Yeah. And so do we know why liquid oils lower cholesterol and saturated fats raise cholesterol? I think we know better. Uh, I think we know now that you're actually changing membrane fatty acid composition with the different fats that we're eating. Um, and a high saturated fat diet does change the the way that the liver and liver cells uh, process or remove LDL cholesterol, LDL particles from the blood. That's, and of course, that's the way statins work is they upregulate the LDL receptor and remove more LDL from the blood. Uh, and if, if, the, if you're eating more saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fat, those LDL receptors are not uh, as efficient at moving LDL out of the circulation. So LDL levels go up. Um, that's kind of the shorthand of what we know now, but th- there is a, a physical cellular biochemical reason for why different fats have different effects on cholesterol levels. Okay, great. So, so then as far as springing forward from that, we know so much about the omega-3s and the, and the longevity studies and why they're so important for human health. Maybe we can get into that. Sure. Yeah. Um, We've been interested in, of course, omega-3 for a long time. And until, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, nobody really looked at, at total mortality or, or effects. They've looking, looked at people with cardiovascular disease and the effects of omega-3 on those people, typically lower risk for cardiovascular events, which should translate into a longer lifespan if you have less events. Um, but more recently, we've been... Uh, part of a group called FORCE, F-O-R-C-E, which stands for Fatty Acid Outcomes Research Consortium. Um, It's a group that started out of Tufts University in Boston. Uh, And 
it's a collaboration of, of multiple uh, in, individuals who have access to different uh, research cohorts, like the Framingham cohort, or like EPIC or MESA or ERIC, or these these acronyms that we throw around that most people don't know. But they're fundamentally groups of people that have um, volunteered to be in a lifetime study. You know, uh, like in Framingham, they they took like four thousand people out of the town of Framingham, Massachusetts in the 1940s, when this started, and they did every test known to man in, on these people. They were all healthy people, you know, middle-aged people. And, and then they just followed them for years and, and looked for the relationship between some something they measured, either a, a, some, they actually developed the term risk factor, uh, just for the Framingham group, because nobody used that term before. Nobody knew it that. Nobody knew that smoking, was related to high risk for, for uh, cancer or heart disease. They didn't know high blood pressure was. They didn't know high cholesterol was. So that's how they discovered these risk factors. Um, and so they're, like Framingham, there are cohorts like that all around the world. Uh, and, and so we have a collaboration with many of those cohorts and the ones that have measured fatty acids in the blood are the ones we work together with. And we found when we asked the question, of all these cohorts and you know several several thousand people together, uh, is there a relationship between the blood omega three level and your risk for dying over time? Um, and of course, you know the window, the average window of time between blood drawing and and when we stop following up on people, it's like sixteen years, thirteen, sixteen years, something like that. So it's a you know. Obviously, if you study omega-3 levels in 10-year-olds and ask what's the mortality in the next 10 years, you're not going to find anything because nobody's going to die. <laughs> no. You've got to study people toward the end of life if you're going to look about look at prolonging life. Um, and we found that the higher the omega-3 level, the lower the risk for death from not just total mortality, which was everything, uh, all in, but for cardiovascular disease, for cancer, and for non-cardiovascular, non-cancer, whatever else is in that bucket, the whole thing. So omega-3, high omega-3 was associated with just a um, generalized slowing of the aging process. And we had been part of a study some years ago where they actually looked at omega-3 levels and how they predicted the rate of, of telomer shrinkage. And that was another study where we found that People had the highest omega-3 levels, had the slowest rate of change over time in their telomeres, which is, is an anti-aging outcome. And then, you know, final one would be look, just look at what we call ecological studies, or studies of this country versus that country, or this culture and that culture. And you look at Japan, which is a very high omega-3 intake country. They also have, what a surprise, one of, one of the longest lifespans on the planet. Uh, about four years longer than Americans on average. Um, so we think we're so great. Well, you know, um, so that's that's also kind of a consistent story with the high omega-3 linked with longer outcomes, longer, excuse me, lifespans. Right. So so mentioning risk, risk factors and the studies and the longevity studies that you've done, and and having pretty clear consensus data that uh, higher levels are are correlated with longevity. Yet, any any speculation as to when uh, the FDA or whoever deems a risk factor variable to be a risk factor that omega three will actually become one, as it isn't at this time. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure I'll live to see it. I'd love to. I'll live longer than I would otherwise because I'm taking all my omega-3s, but it might not be long enough, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's not the FDA that determines that. It would be a, a medical societies. So, like, a joint a joint uh, consensus conference by the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, for example, that those guys get together periodically and say, hey, here's a, here's a new risk factor. Let's ha have a consensus conference on it, and let's make a decision and, and then advise our community this is important. So that's that's the way it would happen, that someone would have to bang on the door loud enough to get their attention. Um, and the omega-3, I mean, it's, 
I know we've got 45 minutes here, but you can go longer if we need complicated. to. Okay. Right, right. I mean, it's complicated because there have been many randomized trials with omega-3, um, many successful, uh, but not, not a few that have been neutral, no, no benefit. And there, of course, there, the, when these studies are done, they're done with the, the drug model in mind. You know, take people in their mid-60s, give them either a placebo or give them omega-3, just like you give them a placebo or you give them a statin, and then wait two, three, four years and see if you've had any effect on heart disease rates. Well, sometimes that doesn't work with omega-3, and I would not expect it to work with omega-3. But the medical, because it's, the omega-3 benefits a life, lifetime thing, it's not a start when you're already old and sick and on a bunch of drugs and try and turn that battleship around with with the nutrient it isn't going to happen and so i'm not surprised but the medical community doesn't think that way they they think if you do a study like that and you don't get an effective omega-3 then omega-3s don't work and that's the message that goes out to the community they don't work without any caveats without any yeah but they don't work well. They they do work if you test them in the right way, uh, and but nobody's going to do a, a forty year randomized trial with placebo and omega three to prove that they actually do have these effects. You can't do it. Uh, so anyway, that's because of that mindset in the cardiology community, particularly. Um, most of them dismiss omega three as irrelevant. So th back to your point about when are we going to get this test approved by the cardiovascular community, it's going to be a while because they have this idea that they don't work. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your insight on that. Yeah. So as far as the Omega Quant company and the company you founded, mm -hmm. uh, maybe tell us about exactly what an Omega Quant test is and how it would differ from uh, an Omega-3 test that is being done to, without, through a different company? Because I know both tests aren't necessarily created equal. So I guess a two-part question. Yeah. Uh, and actually, this raises yet another reason why testing is going to be hard to get into routine medical tests, because there's different ways to do it. Right. There's really only one way to measure your serum cholesterol. Yeah, and it is a number of one thing in the plasma uh, or serum. Uh, with omega-3, you can measure fatty acids in all kinds of places in the blood. You can measure them in red blood cells, which is what we like to do because it's a representative cell. Uh, but most clinical laboratories don't think about red blood cells. They think about everything being measured in the serum or plasma. And so all the methodologies are set up for that type, that approach. And, and so at Omega Quant, um, our laboratory, we, we measure whole blood omega-3 levels. We measure red blood cell. We, measure, we can measure plasma. We can do all that. And we do for different customers. Um, but our, our flagship test, we think, is called the Omega-3 Index, which is EPA plus DHA, the sum of those two in red blood cell membranes. Uh, we can get that number from either a direct red blood cell assay, which would be a, a blood sample would have to come in a tube so we could actually isolate the red cells, or we can do it from a dried blood spot, um, which is much more convenient, of course, just a, a, a dried spot on a piece of paper. Uh, and so we get the omega-3 index. Uh, that test we created, we, we developed, invented, whatever you want to call it, 20 years ago. And next year is our anniversary. Uh, and we came up with it based on a lot of good scientific evidence at the time. And we proposed then, back in 2004, that uh, an omega-3 index over 8% is the target value. That's, that's what you want to go for. Uh, and that omega-3 levels are not, are not just a marker of how much fish you eat. They're, in fact, a, as much of a risk factor as cholesterol is, more than. It's a better risk factor, better predictor of adverse outcomes. The lower it is? Uh, it, it goes the other way. High omega-3 is good. Obviously, low right. cholesterol is good. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like HDL cholesterol in that sense. The higher, the better. Right. Um, so 
the omega-3 index uh, again was created then we started the laboratory in around 2009 and now we've been uh, just doing our thing and uh, providing assays we, we as you mentioned there's different ways of expressing it uh, and others, there's some labs i think it's quest that does a plasma phospholipid omega-3 level so that's they're doing and that is different than the red blood cell uh, it gets a different number uh, the numbers are fairly, I mean, the uh, the metrics are fairly highly correlated. So you can you know, put it on a graph, the red blood cell level, the plasma phospholipid level, and make a nice line. Uh, so you can infer one from the other with an equation. Uh, and we do that a lot uh, to, to make sense of numbers that are not uh, the red blood cell per se. Uh, so, but it gets confusing to people. Another lab, I believe it's Boston, Boston Heart does a, a whole plasma omega-3 level. Some people, and, and to add to the confusion, if, if I might, we present our data as a percent of total fatty acids. Some labs will present their values as a concentration in like micromoles per mil or micrograms per milliliter, things like that. Uh, when the numbers are completely hooey, you, know, I mean, you have no idea what, what one means relative to the other. So. That's part of the problem, again, with moving this thing into the clinic and making it a standardized test. We have to get everybody in the, in the community together on one metric. And we're, that's what we're going to report. And then the doctors, then we have one standard reference range, one target healthy value, and then we can move forward. But unfortunately, it's, a, it's more complicated. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And uh, so, I mean, you're comparing apples, oranges, grapes, yeah. greens when you have different units. But I've also heard you say that it's a lot more noisier when you're looking at plasma. So what, what is that extra noise, Bill, what, that on top of those challenges that you're getting these other informations going on as well? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, plasma levels of omega-3 are noisier. They vary more day to day. It, it's very much, I mean, I'm sure your audience is very familiar with the serum glucose versus or plasma glucose versus a hemoglobin A1C value and right. in terms of monitoring glycemic status in patients. And of course, hemoglobin A1C is much a much longer term, more stable, less noisy marker. That's exactly what the omega-3 index is, a red blood cell. It's measured also in like hemoglobin, it's measured in red cells. Um, and it's a long-term marker plasma. You know, if you have a high omega-3 meal last night, your tomorrow's your plasma level is going to be much higher, and it's going to misrepresent to the clinician what your general status is because it's an aberration. Um, you take you know a big load of fish oil pills three hours before you go to have your blood drawn, your doctors, and you're going to have a higher plasma level than you normally do. And will look like you're great, you know, but you look at the red cells, they tell a different story. Um, so we prefer um, for patient care, you know, the most important thing for patient care is that you always use the same lab. I mean, I, I would love to say everybody needs to use Omega Quant. It isn't going to happen. Um, we're not a big international uh, conglomerate of laboratories. So I know people are going to get Omega-3 testing in different, different ways, different labs. And if you don't want to be confused, just use the same metric all the time. And if you want to change your diet, you start taking supplements, you should watch that metric improve. It should improve. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm thankful that anybody's even caring to measure anything about omega-3 in the blood. You know, there was 20 years ago, nobody gave a hoot. Nobody right. did. Right. Uh, now, even the big boys are starting to offer it. I don't know how many doctors use it. Uh, but that, I think, is a step in the right direction, acknowledging the importance of omega-3 in the blood panel. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, the omega quant is so so versatile. I mean, first, it's affordable. And secondly, it, it can be sent all over, which is great because it's just yeah. a it's a blood spot. Um, but you you mentioned before, there's a huge difference between taking it 
And then a huge difference between assimilating it, utilizing it, and having a subsequent increase in your percentage, which we suggest at the RBC level should be 8% or, or, or higher. I guess there's a lot of ways we can go, and I know research is still getting into that. But obviously, if you're doing a plasma or serum level, it's not indicating, it's actually giving you a better idea that there may be a lot more challenges going on um, if you were to compare that to an omega quant and see that the numbers are are telling a different story, that it isn't being utilized and in getting into the red blood cell and being um, and elevating and increasing your, uh, I guess, chances for longevity and reduction of inflammation. Long-winded commentary. I guess um, what would be some of the reasons, if you if you would, Bill, on why not all not all people utilize and, and build up their omega-3 levels um, compared to everyone that does it? What are some of the differences and variations? Sure. Well, one is certainly going to be, I mean, I guess we're going to assume same intake. Right. Same amount of omega-3 is going in the mouth. What explains the differences in blood levels and the differences in response to supplementation? So there's two, two different questions. Right. Uh, Differences in, in chronic blood levels, just based on your standard diet, are, are going to be more complicated than why would there be a difference in person A versus person B who takes a thousand milligrams a day. Right. And well, one thing is, what, what do you take the omega-3s with? What kind of food? Or if you take omega-3, certain kinds of omega-3 products, take them on an empty stomach, you're not going to get much absorption. Other other forms, the triglyceride form or phospholipid form, if, even if you take it on an empty stomach, it's going to absorb pretty well. But the ethyl ester form, which is the drug, the drug form of omega three, uh, it does not absorb well without other fat around it to stimulate the lipases and other uh, pancreatic and, and uh, biliary secretions to help digest fat and absorb fat. So. It's always best to take omega threes or whatever form it is, with with food, um, and there's almost always some fat in the food, so it's it, you don't have to. I mean, you're just going to eat dry toast and orange juice. It's not much fat there, okay? But you know, a, a a standard meal, take the fish oil with that for best absorption. So that's that's one variability, one variance. Uh, but and then you get into some. There's a few studies that look like uh, maybe. Uh, the, your intake of choline might also affect how well you absorb or incorporate omega-3 into phospholipids. Um, that's that's uh, needs to be developed further to be really understood well. Uh, there's certainly some interactions with omega-3. I mean, I'm, I'm jumping over to dementia at the moment here, but there, there have been studies that shown that people that take omega-3 with B vitamins or have good B vitamin status, uh, their, uh, um, the level of omega-3 for them does correlate with their risk for dementia. But if you've got lousy B, B vitamin status, the omega-3s don't relate. So there's some interaction going on with B vitamins and omega-3 that's favorable. Um, that's not really, to your question, that's not really changing your blood levels or your response. Uh, and I think we really don't have too many good ideas um, or good data to really compare different responses in different people, partly because you need to do it in a lot of people and you have to look at their genetic makeup and you have to be absolutely sure they're taking the stuff because non-compliance can screw that up in a minute. Um, you know, people say they're taking it or they're not. Um, you know, there, and of course, there's some products that are probably poorly absorbed um, because of an enteric coating that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you got to know how much omega-3 you're taking. You know, you, you can't just look at the front of the bottle and see a thousand milligrams and think you're getting a thousand milligrams of EPA and DHA because you're not. Hi, I hope you're getting a lot of value from our podcast today. I know I had an excellent time interviewing Dr. Bill Harris. 
and the entire Omega Quant information that he provided for us. If you're frustrated that you're not getting any information about your health challenges and your blood tests are normal and you're looking to do this test, I highly suggest it, whether it's the complete profile or just the basic profile. Um, he's been kind enough to give us a discount link. If you click on the link below and use the discount code Dr. Joel, it will save you about 5%, something small, but I still encourage you to do it. So now back to the interview. All right. All good. All good examples. But I think the importance is to have a, a baseline and people that are listening to this are typically taking their their health into their own hands. And oh. a good reason for Omega Quant is because a lot of the people that I do work with personally and, and hear about is my blood tests are normal. Nothing's wrong with me. I feel awful. But when you have a, a baseline of an omega quant that's less than eight or it's in the threes or fours, and yeah. uh, you know that there's some form of inflammatory cascade going on and to use yourself as a study of one and retest and, and see how that's going. You know, I showed you the, the genomic pyramid that we did before we began in that fatty acid section. They do have bile synthesis and utilization and PEMT is one of those enzymes, but there's other uh, CYP enzymes and other enzymes that are used for um, absorption and and flow and so that could that's where I was thinking that could be helpful as well you, you know if that makes sense right right, right. I mean if you got if you're looking at levels of anything in the blood you got to consider the rate into the blood and the rate out of the blood right and and so some of those enzymes we were talking about earlier are the synthetic side on on the synthesis of omega three the production. Right. But we right. really can talk about the breakdown of, or the use of the omega-3s throughout the body and what enzymes or, or genes that produce enzymes are affected or that might affect that cascade. I think there's a ton of work to be done on just that very question. You know, what are the genetic determinants of the omega-3 level? Right. Yeah. And where the bees fit in, I mean, people just reductionately say I have MTHFR and I can't convert folic into folate or methylfolate, what I explain to them is that's a small little income to the major expenses of histamine production, other types of stressors, and that use up the supply of that little income as well. So now you're getting very dynamic, but keeping it back to your, your test, um, as far as the complete goes, so you have a, a basic profile where you can look at just the omega-3 index and, and ideally looking to get it above 8%. I guess before we move on what's on the complete test, maybe give us a, a little idea on the calculator. I think that's a really great tool that you guys have is the omega-3 calculator. So let's say you get that test result back, you're in the 5% range, you have an omega-3 calculator. Where does that fit in? Yeah, so the I'm glad you brought the calculator up. Um, we, we did a paper with a gal named Rachel Walker at Penn State some years ago, and we asked the question: How much omega three does it need, do you need to can go from like a four percent to an eight percent omega three index? And we did it with a bunch of data that we had collected, and we produced a calculator that is on our website now. Um, and what you do is you put in your your current omega-3 index value and then it's sort of it's it's set the equation but in the background is set to tell you how much more omega-3 you need to take to go from your value up to eight percent uh, and for your example five percent you need roughly a thousand milligrams on average i mean that's again coming out of an equation from 1100 people um, it's a good place to start uh, aim for a thousand additional grams of uh, milligrams of EPA and DHA per day, and over three to four months, you should see an increase uh, up four to eight percent. And so I, I think that's a nice feature. Um, but there, always the caveat, and you brought it up earlier, the response is different for different people. So that's why you have to test and retest and see if you, you, you are the product you're using. You and your lifestyle and your genes and your food and, you know, are you smoking? I'm sure most people are not smoking who are doing this, but smoking lowers omega-3 levels in, in the blood. Um, so you have to take all that into account and test and retest. Right. And and not all you've talked about earlier, not all omega-3 sources are created equal. Um, we have the triglyceride, ethyl ester, and the and the phospholipid. Maybe just touch upon that a little bit, Bill, because a lot of people ask that question: is 
what's the best form or do I, why do I burp and get a fishy smell or why, you know, do I refrigerate it? What, maybe we can get into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the forms, the, the classic forms are triglyceride, which is a standard fish oil. Uh, there is an ethyl ester, which is a chemically produced, or I mean, biochemically produced from triglycerides. Everything starts with oil from fish. All the products do. Yeah, I guess except krill oil, which obviously starts from krill, uh, which is a, a little crustacean uh, that's at the base of the food chain. But the fish oils, uh, the crude fish oils from Peru is where they usually come from. Uh, anchovies, sardines, they, uh, the companies will take those and they will concentrate the omega-3s, meaning they will remove other non-omega-3 fatty acids, throw them away, keep the omega-3s and keep concentrating them for different chem by different uh, chemical processes. And one way to concentrate it is to make an ethyl ester instead of a glycerol ester, which is triglycerides. And the ethyl esters, as I mentioned, are more, they're more concentrated, more per pill, typically, uh, more uh, molecules of EPA and DHA. But you, you, you got to you know, be sure you take them with food to make them be absorbed. Um, there are things called restructured triglycerides, re-esterified triglycerides, where you start with the raw oil, cut off all the all the fatty acids from the glycerol backbone and triglyceride, throw away the non-omega-3s, and then keep all the omega-3s and then re-esterify them back to a glycerol backbone again. Now you're back to a triglyceride. It's not exactly a natural triglyceride because they don't exist like this in nature with all three fatty acids being omega-3s on a triglyceride. Usually it's one out of three. That's a, that's the fatty acid omega-3. So, But anyway, it, it's a, a good absorption uh, uh, form, the triglycerides are. Phospholipids is what we get typically from uh, krill oil. Uh, that's lower in concentration of omega-3, but uh, absorption is good. It's 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 a good form. It's it's kind of an expensive form because it's hard to, hard to hard get. To make. Right. Hard right. to make, um, but it's still a very effective form in, in raising omega-3 levels. And there's a bunch of others that are coming out. There's algal, algal oils, um, are for primarily for vegans, right. vegetarians uh, who don't want any animal products, and those are fine. That's an that's a triglyceride-based oil. It just comes from uh, originally from an algae, uh, and, and I'm not talking seaweed. I'm talking about micro, you know, single-celled algae uh, that are naturally make EPA, naturally make DHA, and they they've been discovered by scientists and harvested and concentrated and uh, producing oils that way. And I think it really didn't really ask this, but that's kind of, I think the future, uh, of omega-3 supplements is going to be more and more, um, well, actually we're going to get into GM. Well, we can go, yeah, we can get into that right now. GMO so products, that's a good, right. good segue. Because, uh, yeah, there, the goal is to, well, for many people, uh, to have a land-based plant like soybean, like, uh, corn, well, corn's not being used, but that idea, something you can grow from the ground that will produce EPA and DHA in the oil. And, and they've done this in limited levels and researchers around the world are still working on this, but they've had to transplant genes into these, into these seed crops, these seed oil crops that will convert uh, omega-6 to omega-3 and they will actually make EPA and DHA uh, in the oil. And so they can, essentially, there's no, you don't have to kill any fish anymore <laughs> to make EPA and DHA. They're, these molecules are very, very difficult to make chemically, just like in a, starting from raw materials in a, in a chemistry factory. You, you can't make them like a drugs. Many drugs are made, you know, uh, but chemically synthesized from nothing all the way up. Can't do that for omega-3. It's just much too expensive. So we've got to have nature make them and then we isolate them and concentrate them. And I think, uh, I think we're going to see over the next 10, 20 years, uh, more and more crop-based, if we can get past the GMO craziness, um, my opinion. Right. You know, right. That's, you know, paint, everything is GMO is bad. Uh, right, right. On. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Um, so I, I think that's a, one of the best uses of GMO technology is to increase omega-3 uh, production so we don't have to harvest fish to get it. 
Right, right. Which, which I think opens the door, though, as far as a lot of people, and you said before we began, just battling the whole Omega-6 is bad um, blanket statement. And I guess the skeptics would think, okay, GMO aside, how am I going to get the good without getting the bad? I guess that would be sort of the, the question. Or maybe we can start to tackle linoleic acid or um, Omega-6s and the good and the bad that you and your research of over 40 years have, have can, can distill down for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've, it, it seems like there is this idea that if you're a fan of omega-3, you have to be, you have to hate omega-6. You have to have a black hat and a white hat. And it's just gotta be that simple because the omega-6s and omega-3s compete for different pathways, uh, yada, yada, yada. And we eat a lot of linoleic acid, and essential, it's an essential fatty acid. Everybody knows that. Um, people at one end think it's poison. I, I think it's good for you. I mean, the evidence we have uh, from blood level, and there are a lot of studies like this, but we're, uh, we've published already as part of this force uh, research group, two studies. One looked at blood levels of linoleic acid, 18 to omega-6, um, and then we, then we looked at risk for developing heart disease. And we, in, an, in another study, we looked at risk for developing diabetes. Uh, and we found that maybe somewhat to someone's some surprise, the higher the level of linoleic acid, the lower the risk for developing heart disease or diabetes. So that, those aren't the only diseases on the planet, God knows. Uh, but for those two major ones, uh, higher linoleic acid levels predict better outcomes. Uh, and I'll just tell you right now, we're working on another paper looking at omega-6 in a very large uh, cohort, the UK Biobank. And we are seeing the same thing, uh, that the higher the linoleic acid level, the lower the risk for death from cardiovascular, from cancer, from everything else. Um, it's, it's just so clear. So the folks that are squawking about omega linoleic acid being somehow a poison, they need to address those findings. They need to, what, what I see people do is just to go, oh, you know, it's just epidemiology. You know, well, come on, it's life and death. I mean, we're talking about human beings and do they live, do they die, do they get sick or not? And you got to tell me why high omega-6 in the plasma predicts better, high linoleic predicts better outcomes. Tell me why that's a poison. Right. You, know, you, you can't just brush it off. You, you've got to address the issue if you're going to be scientific and objective. Right. That's, that's the thing. If you're going to be scientific about it. That's right. And so as far as was there a difference between the form of the omega-6 bill or was it, was that? Oh, yeah. So arachidonic acids, the other one we typically measure in the blood. That's the, right. the, you know, and, and if we think about plasma levels, about 75% of the omega-6 family in plasma is linoleic acid. Of, of what's left, 75% of that is arachidonic acid. So those are the two big ones, but linoleic is much bigger. Um, and what we're seeing in, for the cardiovascular outcomes and for diabetic outcomes, there was no relationship between arachidonic acid levels and either of those outcomes, developing diabetes or developing heart disease. Um, so no signal there that high arachidonic, I mean, that's, that is the, if there's a poster child that's, that's got a skull and crossbones across it, it's, it's arachidonic acid, you know, but, uh, but we, we haven't seen any effect there. Um, now I will say in this new analysis we're looking at uh, on total mortality, there are some outcomes uh, particularly the other causes of death where a high level of what we'll call non-linoleic acid omega-6. We don't know, in, in this particular data set, we don't have the granularity. We don't know arachidonic acid levels per se, but we know the non-LA omega-6, which is mostly arachidonic. We know, and, and so for total, for total deaths in non-cardiovascular, non-cancer outcomes, there is a higher risk for death with higher levels of that non, non, yeah, the non-LA in six. So I think that's that's interesting. And it it's it just tells you how nuanced you gotta be. And it 
what it says to me, it screams to me that people that want to lump all omega-6s into one pot and say they're all the same thing are way off, that the evidence does not support that view. Right? You got to be more careful. You got to talk about specific fatty acids. And some of them you can control. Some of them are dietary. Linoleic is, and to some extent, arachidonic is. Uh, we eat it anyway, but not very much. But the other omega-6s are all metabolic, fundamentally. They're produced in the body from those those precursors. And so to some extent, it's kind of hard to manipulate um, through yeah. lifestyle changes, your ratios of some of the odd omega-6s. Uh, so there's a lot to learn here. And I, I think we don't, we, we do a disservice to the field by just painting all of them with, the, with a, a, they're bad. All omega-6s are bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, there may be something to this, the, the concern about, about seed oils and diseases you know i hear people make that make that argument and i'm not saying that's not true i i haven't really studied it that well myself seed oil question right but but to link it to linoleic acid that's wrong right and also too not to necessarily have those ratios and i've I, you know that's a good sort of next conversation is the complete test looks at the six to the three, which can be or can't be useful information. Um, but to not know, I mean, all things being equal with the recommendations from OmegaQuan is to get those threes up no, no matter what. Um, the thing I was thinking about though before is those, those other non-LA omega-6s are metabolic in nature. I always look at it as, is the pump already primed? And is that person already having smoke coming out of the chimney, if you will? Are they already having a problem with combining the food they eat with the air they breathe to produce ATP, CO2, and water? Um, and typically, if that's the case, then you're already going to have those Plinko chips going down the inflammatory pathways already anyways, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be. I like your, your I'm, not, I'm not sure what a Plinko chip is, though. You know, so do you remember the, um, I don't know, you probably didn't watch Price is Right. So there was a game where they had to get into the $1,000 and it would go down the different ways, right? So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. based on inflammatory enzymes, up regulations and down regulations, they go down the wrong pathways and go down the omega-6 and the leukotrienes and the prostaglandins and so forth. So. Right. 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 Well, it's, I think to, to me, I mean, you're kind of hinting around the, the omega-6, omega-3 ratio. Right. Which we do provide in our complete analysis. Uh, right, right. So because people want it, you know, and we've right. got the data, so we give it to them. Um, right. Am I a fan of it? No. You know, but I don't call all the shots at omega-1, you know. Right. <laughs> Just because I don't like it doesn't mean the whole world can't see it, you know. Right. Um, uh, so, but the problem with it is, number one, Thing I just mentioned, it's, it's assuming all omega-6s are bad. Right. And all omega-3s are good. You know, it's right. just, just very black, white. Don't think about it. Look at a ratio. Um, that's a problem. Number two, with that ratio, I, I think um, it's not very actionable because it, it leads people to think, oh, well, I can fix my ratio by just eating less omega-6 and not increasing my omega-3. Well, that's not going to help at all. That's going to hurt on twice because you're not increasing omega-3 and lowering your omega-6 is probably going to actually hurt you in the long run. Um, so, but that would fix the ratio. The right way to fix the ratio is to increase your EPA DHA. And that you can do based on the omega-3 index. You, you learn that. Um, and that will improve your ratio. Uh, but I, I don't, and the other, other problem with the ratio is you can have high levels of both EPA, omega-3 and omega-6, or low levels of omega-3 and omega-6, and exactly the same ratio. Right. So in it, the mathematically, it doesn't make sense. Did it, those studies ever do it going back to the ones that you were talking about? Did they ever look at those high or low ratio or those ratios of six to three to see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some of the ones we did, we did uh, not in the force group, but we've done it with a, a couple of, with the Women's Health Initiative and with Framingham. And the omega the omega-6 omega-3 ratio is driven by the omega-3s omega-6 is quite pretty steady in the blood uh, and doesn't vary very much between people but omega-3s do and so that ratio is driven by so what the story that the low omega-3 tells is the same story as the high omega-6 omega-3 ratio 
because the omega threes drive in the ratio. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the where that pervasive of the omega six is the the oils that are that are hydrogenated or processed and and high temperature um, use the when you get a food that has a very high omega six to omega three ratio. I think that translates to the layman's mind of wanting to see what it looks like in the blood as well. Well, and, and that's it's a great point because I, th I think we labor under the illusion that what we eat. All the fatty acids we eat, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, all the omega-6, they determine your blood fatty acid or your tissue fatty acid profile. And it isn't that simple. You you can't control that much. I mean, your body has so has been designed to have so many checks and balances. And, you know, it, like for example, the red blood cell, when it's made in the bone marrow, it takes fatty acids from the blood and it picks the ones it wants and puts them in that membrane. So the membrane will have the properties it needs to, you know, squeeze through the capillaries and all that. Uh, you don't, you're not in control. I mean, at, at one level, we, we do provide a, in the complete report, all your fatty acids and it's the whole blood fatty acid profile. And it, it's there. We have the data. Um, some people like to see it. Um, my question is how actionable is it? From a from a physician's point of view, particularly, you know, what are you what are you going to do with? Here's some fatty acid that comprises, say, one percent of the total, and you know, you're in the ninetieth percentile of it or the tenth percentile, and we get phone calls from people say, well, "What do I do to fix that?" Well, I, I don't know. You can't do anything to fix that. It's it's, it's the way it is. <laughs> um, so I it, I think there can be too much information. I'm I'm you know. Obviously, I'm talking like a scientist, not a business business person. Um, but, you know, that's the way it is. Uh, some people love that complete profile and we're happy to give it to them. Um, and, and some people dig deeply into those fatty acids and try to make changes in their lifestyle. And, you know, God bless them. That's, that's fine. Um, right. We just don't know if it's going to work. That's all. Right. No, it's you're right. I think there's a, a Goldilocks zone of too much and too little information. I do have a, a couple of friend practitioners that really like build the complete profile because they're looking at the saturated fatty acid component of it and trying to extrapolate the the membrane integrity. Um, but then they also use the the genomics that I was showing you earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a good info, good area to start to talk about. What's your insight, or what could you tell the listeners? that more likely than not is going to have some problems with listening to hearing about omega-6 aren't as bad as they originally put them in the in the category that they they've thought and heard about but furthermore on the other side of the switch they've said that saturated fats are the only source of fats that i really want um i guess with the omega quan and all the studying that you've done what what would you be your insight on notwithstanding everything we've talked about before and boosting up your omega-3 ratio and having it above eight percent where do saturated fats come in on on this yeah well you know it, it almost gets counterintuitive because one of the ways there's two ways to raise your the, your saturated fat levels and the primary saturated fat fatty acid in the blood and the membranes is palmitic acids, 16 carbon notable bonds. And the thing is, you can get that into your blood two different ways. One, you can eat it in saturated, in meats, you know, uh, so, so solid fats, butter, yada, 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 uh, Crisco. Um, or you can make it. That's not essential fatty acid. Your body will make it from protein or from carbohydrate. And one way to raise levels of palmitic acid is to lower your fat intake and raise your carbohydrate intake. A high carb diet will cause the liver to make more palmitic acid and put it out there. So when we, we see high palmitic acid levels, it's like, well, is it because you're eating a lot of it or because you're on a high carb diet and you're making a lot of it? And it's a, it's a seesaw. And it's a little hard to counsel people on what to do about that. Um, and if they know they're going out of their way to eat a really, say, a low-carb diet, which would be a low-carb diet typically is a high-fat diet. And that may actually lower your levels of saturated fat. 
because you're not synthesizing as much. Right. Yeah. And, and the palmitic should be lower, not higher. Yeah, yeah. High so high palmitic levels are one of the predictors of um, diabetes, for example. Right. The hallmarks, or one of the whatever the word is, predictors. Yeah. Uh, right. So lowering that is, you know, do you do that by eating a high fat diet or low fat diet? Well, you can go either way. Do you see their omega threes being low with those type of cohorts or? Um, independent omega threes are not, uh, even though it's a percent of total fatty acids and some people get a little wacky about, oh my God, is if I change that one over there and raise it, then that's going to lower the omega three. Well, it doesn't work that way in, in biology. Um, if there is a, a, a seesaw in any fatty acids, it's all in the polyunsaturates. The, you're, when we looked at, at studies where people's omega-3 levels went way up because they took supplements, and what happened was their omega-6 went down, but their saturates and monounsaturates stayed exactly the same, un, unaffected. So there is a switching off of uh, percent, percent one goes up, percent the other one goes down, but it's omega-6, omega-3. That's what's switching naturally. Because the omega-6 and omega-3 are competing for, diff for the same spot on a, on a membrane. The saturates and monos are not competing with those spots. Right. So anyway. Um, it, gets, it gets complicated, but you know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that as far as the back to the original, will it ever be a risk factor? I think there's a lot of sacred cows in LDLs, bad, HDLs, good, and cholesterol is the overarching number that we need to look at. And I think there are doctors that come out and say they're not really looking at cholesterol markers per se in an island of its own, but they're looking at triglycerides to HDL markers, or we're looking at the small density particles and so forth. I guess the question would be, Bill, how would that change around the recommendations or the inferences that you would have from the omega quant? What Unrelated. I mean, I, I, Unrelated, I, I right. would say, you know, if, if you're looking, those are lipid lipoprotein measures. Right. Uh, I'm talking about TG, HDL ratios, you know, LDL particle size, ApoB levels. Right. Uh, Omega-3s don't really, I, well, to the extent that a, a fairly high dose of omega-3 will lower your triglycerides, which it will. Right. Um, and that will change your, your triglyceride ratio. ratio. Right. And to the extent that that's a predictor of, of um, metabolic syndrome, right, that should improve. Uh, right. But the omega threes aren't really going to do much for LDL cholesterol, right? Values, particle numbers, or otherwise, uh, they don't play much in that in that sandbox. They affect right. otherwise, you know, unrelated to cholesterol. There's a whole bunch of other things that affect risk for cardiovascular. Right. I mean. Right. Classic example but, is aspirin. You know, take a baby aspirin, you'll reduce your risk for heart attacks. Uh, it doesn't lower your cholesterol at all. Right. It plays in a different field. Right. And that pay, does that pay, play? Because the controversy, or at least what I've been studying, and I said I'd like to know a lot more than I know now to ask you better questions, is that the polyunsaturated fatty acids are a lot more combustible. And I believe it, from an oxidative standpoint versus oxidizable, yeah, oxidizable. Sorry, and um, and so if your pump is already primed, like I said, and you're not combining the food you eat and the air you breathe, and you have these free radicals that you're in this excessive state of reduction for, and there's all these H hydrogen bonds or looking for oxidants to get reduced, um, that can cause. Again, the shifting of those arachidonic acid pathways and and so forth. I, I guess if there's a question in there, where where do you think the science is going? Because I know with you know I, I remember reading on your website with the palmitic uh, acid and higher reflection of carbohydrate intake, but there's still yet more information to be gleaned from the way that all these sat saturated fatty acids play together. I guess. If there is a question in there, where do you think the science is going towards and how can your test be helpful in, in seeing some of these patterns? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, just to, to jump back to the polyunsaturates being susceptible to oxidation. Right. I mean, that applies even more to omega-3 because there's more double bonds in a given omega-3 fatty acid. You know, four, right. you know, five and six double bonds as opposed to arachidonate with its four and linoleic with its two. 
Um, so, so it's more, it's just for the person listening, it's more oxidizable. More oxidizable, more Over, bonds you have. Right. In, theory, in a test tube. In a test tube, right. In a test tube. Right. The more likely the, the fatty acid is going to break down due to oxid, what we call it peroxidation. It, peroxidation, right. You know. um, so, but, but the, yet the omega-3s are good. But right, the longevity studies and... Yeah, so, there are a lot of antioxidant systems in the body that protect these things. Right. And so to take what happens in a test tube, high high levels of double bonds, polyunsaturates, more oxidizable, therefore bad. Right. Wait a minute. No, you can't do that. Uh, it's simple-minded thinking. Um, but back to I think your question is what there's more information in fatty acid profiles than we know. Right, point. right. Yes. And, thank you. Thank right. you for getting that out of my question. Thank you. But yeah. So, and I think that's true. I think there's, it's like a fingerprint. Um, golly, was it 10 years ago? We did a study in the Framingham group. We looked at, we, we looked at all the fatty acids in the red blood cell and asked which one's predictive of who's going to have a cardiovascular event and not. Uh, and we just told the computer. So we had we had the full fatty acid profile of, you know, 4,000 people. And we knew who had developed heart disease in, you know, sometime after we measured their fatty acid levels. And we said to the computer, here's, it's almost like machine learning or AI, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, tell us what fatty acid is most linked, most, most highly correlated with a, a reduced risk for heart disease. And the first fatty acid it picked was linoleic acid. <laughs> of course, higher levels, better outcomes. Okay, so then then we told the computer, okay, put that aside. Now, of all the other fatty acids, which one is next most associated with beneficial outcomes? And we picked another one, and we did that ten times over. So we get ten fatty acids that together predict as a fingerprint and so, some of them uh, a high level is good some of them a high level is bad you know but just knowing what the fingerprint is so and we published that and that was a lot of fun um so now we're we're taking that same idea uh, actually we've just got two nih grants to study this um these are called small business innovation research grants excuse me i'm so sorry yes sorry. go ahead um so we've, we just got two grants. One of them is to develop a red blood cell based profile fingerprint that would predict risk for uh, developing diabetes. Um, so you get basically, is there more information in that blood fatty acid pattern than we realize? Can we dig deeper? Uh, and then we have the say another grant that's doing the same idea, but looking for risk for dementia, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Because these are two, profiles that we theoretically, if we find something that's really predictive, instead of just one fatty acid, maybe there's seven. Right. Um, that sing sing a song together that one of them is not singing. Uh, if we find that, then we, you know, have a we have a new product for our small business. Uh, that's what the government likes to fund these things to stimulate new ideas in, in small businesses. So that's really cool. So yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. Next year. That's with machine learning, the being able to find that fingerprint. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that's the cool name for it, right? Right. People, biostatisticians have been doing this for years anyway, with you know, right. multivariate analysis and things. But now it's got a cool name: machine learning, AI, and you know. right, multivariate learning. Though that's right, that's great, that's really great. I, I mean, I like I like the complete test, but at the same time, the the like you said, um, the the basic profile of looking at your your omega three index, which is a percentage of omega threes to your whole blood, right, based on your RBC, which correlates what 99 percent, yeah. right, and be able to test it over time, and be able to use a calculator. And at the end of the day, there's no refuting the fact that these studies are showing that omega threes that have more double bonds that are easy or potentially in a test tube more um, oxidizable um, extend your your lifespan so yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so much for the idea that if, just because it's highly oxidizable it's gonna be bad for you yeah I mean if you have a it, it, the thing is it's like saying you know you have a, a barn that has dry wood and if there's a fire on the left side of the building that right side is more burnable 
right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you have more inflammation in your body and, you, yeah. you know, the, the pump's already primed, then that's the problem, I think. Oh, so, right, right. And, yeah. and oxidizability of a fatty acid is a whole different thing than inflammation. Those are different questions completely. Your body right. is an inflammatory response to a, typically a pathogen, you know, some foreign object that is mounting a response to that's immune based. I mean, it's a mixture of the the inflammatory system and the immune system. It's it's, it's right. Talk about complicated. You thought fatty acids were complicated. Oh my god. Yeah, I'd be interested. I've started to put my toe on that rabbit hole a little bit in terms of how exactly is are those cytokines and the inflammatory immune response communicating back and forth with the the entire fatty acid profile as well. Yeah, I know. I, it's it's a crazy complex mix and. Uh, and it's I, we haven't talked about the resolvins, protectins. Uh, the, the Quick, yeah, let's talk about that. So I was going to ask you. Thank you for what is your feeling of that? Is it can should you take that or um, what are protectins and resolvins? And I know you don't like the specific the SPMs, the names, but uh, as far as yeah, yeah what yeah. are they? yeah? Uh, so, so these are sometimes called SPMs or specialized pro-inflammatory res resolving molecules. Um, they're made from omega-3s. There are some that are made from arachidonic acid, uh, and they're good, healthy. Another one of the reasons why omega-6 should not be all considered bad. But primarily, these protectins, resolvins, um, are made from omega-3, EPA and DHA. And they uh, are supposed to, I mean, it's a little controversial these days, but they're supposed to actively suppress or rather reverse a inflammatory response that's appropriately been initiated by some system, but needs to be shut down after a while. And the, that's what the resolvents do. They resolve inflammation. Um, and that's good. And if you haven't got the omega-3s around, then there's nothing to make the resolvents from. And so you don't make them. And so you're, I mean, it's a nice story. And so your, your inflammation persists longer than it otherwise would have. Right. Part of the, there's, it's, omega-3s are anti-inflammatory on the, on the front end of that. They can slow the inflammatory response at the beginning, and they can accelerate the um, resolution of that response. So those are good. Now, whether you should take, there are some companies that are selling SPMs or what I call just, uh, the, the pro-inflammatory or rather inflammation resolving molecules irms is what i'd call them. okay uh, the any, whatever whatever i like that yeah so you know and they'll sell a pill that's got some of these in it. it's got a lot of epa and dha in it too uh but there's some uh of these spms there um to me i mean there are like a hundred of them you know and you pick two you pick three to put into your pill or that just happened to be in the fish oil that you're using and you just decide to identify it. Um, I, I, I just, I prefer to let the body make the molecules it needs in each cell type. In each cell type is going to be a different molecule at once. Give it the precursors, give it the EPA and DHA, give it the food to do the work with, and then let your body make the molecules. That's and it's much cheaper. I mean, there's no, no, I, I haven't seen any clinical evidence that it makes a difference. So it's it's a, it, no, it's it's good. I, you know, I, I want to show you when we're done here some of the pathways that that I look at, and and so it it connects that dot in terms of furthermore those SPMs or those resolving mediators they can inhibit platelet aggregation as well if I'm if I'm correct, um, but I I believe that the platelet aggregation can be. I guess backdoor stimulated through uncoupling of nitric oxide or too much of a, a histamine response or these inflammatory mediators that end up pulling on the platelets weak link of the chain, right? So that's where some of those connections end up coming together. But yeah. I agree with you at the end of the day, you're taking a finger prick analysis, just black and white, where are you? We see studies show that Keep it simple, and maybe we've lost you along the way here, but have your percentage of red blood cells from omegas, EPA, and DHA be at least 8%. Yeah. 
And if you're not getting that, then go out of your way to get that. Um, and foods, I guess we can talk about that before we go here, Bill. What are, I mean, what's really nice about your your company is you give a, a detailed explanation of the different foods, both plant-based and I guess there's not really, I guess the algae now based, but um, where you can be getting just, you don't have to get it all in supplements, but you can go out of your way to get it from foods. What are we, what are they typically looking at? Fish, and obviously. So we do have a table <laughs> in our report that lists uh, a bunch of seafoods um, that from highest EPA and DHA per serving to the lowest. And of course, there's some some fish that are quite popular that have almost no omega-3 in them. Um, tilapia is the one that leaps to mind. Uh, tastes like, doesn't taste like fish. Well, I wonder why. Right. <laughs> it's like chicken because you feed them like chickens. Anyway, um, <laughs> So, and at the top of the list, we have what we kind of acronym that's kind of come around is SMASH fish. So S-M-A-S-H, we've got sardines, or I like to start with salmon, anchovies, mackerel, herring, and uh, anchovies, and maybe albacore tuna is in there somewhere too. Uh, right. Mackerel's there, the M, I think. So those right. are oily fish. We right. like to think, um and those are the best sources, and you can get all the omega three you need. Just me, no, you don't have to take supplements. It can be done with diet. It just so it's a rare American that will do that, right? Yeah, no, it's been awesome. I mean, I I always learn on these on these shows, and I say selfishly, I just let everyone else listen in when I publish it because it's it's for my for my benefit. Um, I I love I love to hear about the results of the of the new studies and the NIH grants that you got going forward and keep an open invitation. One of the questions I always ask. Uh, Bill, of my guests is knowing kind of what you've known or learned over the research of 40 plus years and would have talked to the young, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Bill back in the day. What would you have told yourself uh, that would have been helpful for slowing your own rate of, rate of aging or would have been um, good information for, for yourself? Oh, I, you know, what, what would I have done differently? I, I, I might have... I mean, I've been taking omega-3 supplements for a long time uh, and trying to increase my fish intake. Uh, being from the Midwest, now I'm South Dakota, but most of the time I was in Kansas, Missouri. You know, that's where uh, right. most of my original research, um, not exactly a high fish consuming area. And if it is, it is, it's, you know, fried catfish, you know, or something like that. Right. Bass. Um, so I, I would probably have started taking omega-3 earlier. Um, I did done pretty good though got my omega-3 index around 10 percent i just try to keep it there um and i take about 1400 milligrams of epa dha a day in, in capsule uh, uh, restructured triglyceride form um, right i think that's a good form um so you know otherwise i would have started exercising regularly earlier in my life um i didn't have to quit smoking so i'm good with that so um anyway uh, it, it, it's been a good run. I was I was blessed to be able to get into a research field that I had no idea where it was going, and to get on the omega three train early and to be able to stay on it and still getting more and more interesting all the time. So it's it's been a fast fast and fun career. Yeah, and those are good. And also, just without you saying it, is your continual flexing of the frontal lobe and the and the different parts of the brain and never losing that lose it or, or use it or lose it mentality of yeah. of keeping the brain and the neurons firing. So yeah, thank you so much for being here today. I, I enjoyed our conversation and look forward to maybe part two when you have some more, more juicy information to share with us. Anytime, Joel. Loved it. I appreciate uh, being on. Hi, thank you so much for watching our Age Reversing Blueprint podcast. If you've made it this far, we sincerely thank you for your attention and your interest in reversing your age. If you're looking to get more information on today's topic or other podcasts that we've had, be sure to check out the show notes and be sure to check out drjoelrosen.com. Have an awesome day.